Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And together we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare moment... It would mean the world to us if you drop a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help boost us up the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on so many different social medias. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a whole website just for the podcast. It is closetalking.com where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has a newsletter, Unboxed. So if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind the scenes stuff on Close Talking and on all the literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. All right, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are with you for the final time of 2022. It was quite a year. I do not want to talk about it. I want to talk about... (laughs) This poem. <laughs> well, yes. More like 2020 poo, am I right? 2020 <laughs> poo. Got him. I've decided next year is going to be 2020 tree. Oh, okay. Find out I more can... about that when I write about it in the Unbox newsletter, which is making its triumphant return. Ooh, it is? Yes, it is. You heard it here first. It's coming back. All first, right. it's going to be something about how it's gritty all the time, mate. Because it is gritty all the time, meat, and I have some thoughts on that. And then we're going to talk about naming the new year, and here's your sneak preview. It's going to be 2020 tree, because number one, we should think about the environment a whole lot, but also trees in the natural world have lots of lessons for us about how to live in a more aware and interconnected way. So boom, 2020 tree is going to be the year that we focus on that. And it's always important to name the new year because then you have an intention to return to throughout the year. So you don't have to adopt 2020 tree, but I encourage everyone to come up with their own thing. Do you remember what, I mean, now looking back, 2020 poo. Yes. Do you remember when it was 2020 fun, uh, what 2020 poo was going to be before it became 2020 poo? I don't know that I actually named 2022 because I was not in that mind frame, which is a pretty good indication of how 2020 poo went overall. (laughs) Okay. Um, It may have been 2020 due the year to get things done, uh, but I don't know that I ever actually formalized that. But if I know me, that may have been the thing I thought I was going to say. Um, There was 2020 fun because we were going to have fun again. That didn't totally work out, but like it kind (laughs) of worked out occasionally before, you know, delta and whatever um yeah there was a moment of fun yes 2020 don't look back that was pretty good that was a helpful coping mechanism during 2020 yep 
Um, 2019, it's all going to be all right. That was a good, that was a good <laughs> mantra for that year. 2018, the year in which all good things happened, that came true for me very quickly because Roger Federer won his 20th Grand Slam at the Australian Open, and I managed to get tickets to Springsteen on Broadway. So both of those things happened in January, but it was wow. enough to carry me through the entire year. Wow. Uh, anyway. Wow. The main takeaways next year, 2023, and yes. Unboxed is coming back. So Boom. watch That's out. A- that's all you need to know. Um, That's all you need to know. What you really need to know is about this poem, Connor, and this poet. Woo! I'm yes. derailing us already. I'm sorry. I'm in a mood. No, no, no. You're putting us Dr. back Dr. on Pepper, the rail. Dr. Pepper, my sports physician. <laughs> Jack is amped right now. I am. It has 39 grams of added sugars, Connor. That's And just I believe enough. the highest caffeine content of any commercial soda. <laughs> More than Mountain Dew? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Wow. Okay. It also has, and they tell you this on the can, it's a blend of 23 flavors, Connor. So even if the caffeine and sugar wasn't enough, the sheer stacked flavor content of the beverage would have your tongue Mm. leaping out of your mouth and your synapses firing. So I'm ready to go. Yes. It's always been the gumbo of pop, the jambalaya of soda, (laughs) and uh, the potpourri of fizzy drinks, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. It's uh, those were the mottos I proposed, but you know they did something else with their branding, so that's fine. That's fine. Big doctor them. didn't want to hear it. I know, I know. Scared of the truth. Yep. But uh, yeah, this poem, it is, um, untitled, but it is the first line is flicking off the light switch. Um, it is by Sherwin Bitsui. It is in his book, Flood Song, which came out in 2009 with Copper Canyon. Um, Bitsui also is the author of Dissolve, most recently, which came out in 2018, um, and Shapeshift, which was, I believe, his first book. Um, That came out in 2003. Bitsui is... Um, originally from White Cone, Arizona, on the Navajo Reservation. He is Dine, um, and he got his um, AFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts. Um, And I like this quote. This is on the poets.org bio. Um, Joy Harjo um, described his work as, quote, his poems are wide and deep arroyos and mesas of human perception conceptual word paintings born of agony and joy which i think is a very good introduction to the vibe that's good stuff yeah it really is Um, also do you want to fill folks in on what an afa is yeah and by folks i mean me (laughs) I, I was hoping you would not ask that. <laughs> um, the power of pepper compels me, Connor. Yeah. Okay. It is an associate in fine arts. Gotcha. Um, so it's similar to an MFA or a master of fine arts. Um, thank nice. you for asking that. I was hoping to just move along quickly just wanted to skate on by I, I see you i see what you're doing over there and oh <laughs> here's the thing 
I don't know stuff. <laughs> and I gots to know. I got to know. Well, you're always asking um, the good questions, Jack. It's, I'm it's certainly important. asking questions. I leave it up to the world to let me know if they're good or not. <laughs> um, yeah. And just one uh, thing before we get in the poem, at the very end, there is um, a phrase um, that is um, in the Navajo language or uh, the Diné language. Um, I believe it is pronounced Nahokas um, or something to that effect. I'm not exactly sure. Um, if you, if I get it wrong, please let me know. Um, but yeah, just thought I would mention that before. Um, yeah, let's read it. Well, we should probably say oh. that that oh. word refers to. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was just, See, listen, you're going to hear a sound yeah. and you're going to know that it has a meeting, but I'm not going to tell you that meeting at <laughs> all. Um, I I actually know what this means. Yes. Well, because I Googled it. <laughs> it seems to have a couple potential meetings. They're all slightly related. At least what I found was that it. It is potentially the North Star or the Big Dipper or like North generally. Is that similar to what you found? Okay. Yes, that it is basically, it's a phrase, and I think we'll get into why this is so pertinent in the poem, but it's a phrase that pretty much means the Big Dipper, but because of the words that make it up and because of how the Navajo language works, it also contains other meanings and associations. All right, let's read it. This is Flicking Off the Light Switch from Flood Song by Sherwin Itsui. Flicking Off the Light Switch. Lichen buds the curved creases of a mind, pondering the mesquite tree's dull ache as it gathers its leaves around clouds of spotted doves, calling them in rows of twelve back from their winter sleep. Doves' eyes black as nightfall, shiver on the foam coast of an Arctic dream, where whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice. Seeing into those eyes, you uncoil their telephone wires, gather their inaudible lions with plastic forks, tongue their salty ribbons and untie their weedy stems from your prickly fingers. You stop to wonder what like sounds like when held under glacier water, how Nahokas feels under the weight of all that loss. Love it. Love everything about it. Very into it. <laughs> Cannot wait to hear your thoughts. So, narrative, little narrativo. Um, narrativo. Narrativo. Uh, I would say that I think the kind of quote unquote narrative is also, I guess, inextricably tied to how you would read the poem because it is a poem that is positively covered, you might say. Um, <laughs> in nature imagery and call-outs to the natural world. However, all of that language and all of that imagery is being pointed back towards language. Mm -hmm. And the narrative arc 
of the poem, as much as we want to say there is a narrative arc, is pointing towards what happens to language when it's getting covered up or tied down in different ways and using mm. nature imagery to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you the, there's the temptation of an environmental potentially reading of the poem. And not that there would be anything wrong with that, but from an authorial intent perspective, it seems like that nature imagery is being mobilized for other work that's going on in the poem. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, yeah, and like, um, and this is clear, you know, I've I've been reading other parts of Flood Song and I've read a few other poems um, of Sherwin Bitsu's work. And it's, you know, he's often described as like postmodern, which I think, which I think we've talked about that as a, a genre or a style or a, a whatever. Um, I mean, I think sometimes it loosely just means not easily uh, like fastened to one reading or something, um, which I think is definitely the case here. Um, I mean, the like in terms of like the most literal that we could go, you know, it begins flicking off the light switch and then we have sort of dream language and there's the Arctic dream and then there's winter sleep and there's kind of a you that's wondering. And so with the beginning of flicking off the light switch, there's a way of like, maybe the speaker is like about to drift off to sleep and having some thoughts, um, which doesn't like get you that far. And so I think you're, your um reading of like the relationship between nature and language um is a a much more fruitful like starting point yeah and not to say that the other readings obviously aren't there but it just seems like that's kind of i don't know the work that is going on here or the investigation that's happening is one of language more so than one of the natural world or climate crisis or environmental issues or something it's language issues and there's many intersections i would say in how the language is being interrogated because i think you get a pretty strong statement and maybe we'll talk about this um yeah we'll probably get into it yeah let's get into it um, let's get into it i'm i i only mentioned because i'm curious for your perspective having read more of his work than i have um obviously there's a lot going on here about the limits of language. And there's a lot of call outs to um, like where whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice, this notion of restriction in language um, and gets picked up again, particularly with the glacier water bit. You stop to wonder what like sounds like when held under glacier water. And then um, basically ending on this contemplation of what happens when a native word is put under the weight of all that loss, all the loss of that native language. And so this notion of English as a tool of colonization, which it absolutely was, it was the root of a lot of the really horrible actions in residential schools. People were beaten for speaking native languages. And by people, I mean children. 
Um, there was like really strict language enforcement and there was this real understanding of language as a colonial tool. And it feels like that's where a lot of this goes. I'm curious how you see that happening in this poem, but also how it is in conversation with Bitsui's other works and how it connects to Bitsui's other poems, other works in general. Yeah, no, that that is, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and yeah, and I think, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, so like the way that, um, yeah, just so like a little bit about, I haven't totally finished the collection Flood Song, but um, so interestingly, the kind of epigraph of the book is, um, a quote from um, Rex Lee Jim, who is um, also a poet and um, was once um, the vice president of the Navajo Nation as well. Um, and the the epigraph is the the Dine words that are in this poem. Um, repeated three times, um, Nahokas, 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 um, and then it's Rexley Jim. Um, so I think that's like also kind of an interesting, you know, that's like the first thing kind of you see in the book, and then it's it's referenced, um, and then basically the first poem is like. Uh, it's, it's just toe, like T O with a accent on it. And it, it's kind of in a vertical, like repeated a bunch of like times. And then the very first line of the book is I bite my eyes shut between these songs. Um, and then it's like, they are the sounds of blackened insect husks folded over elk teeth in a tin can. Um, which is very evocative, um, to me, you know, and like, a as you were sort of talking about, um, you know, the, the connection between nature and language is very, um, it's, it's, that's like a huge thing just, you know, um, in that bite my eyes shut between these songs, like. The songs are the sound of insect husks later in the poem. Um, they're speaking a double helix um, and they plant whispers where shouts incinerate into hisses. There's like all this kind of speaking and talking. Um, and, um, you know, there's like another part where it's like I step onto the gravel path of swans paved across lake scent wrap this blank page around the exclamation point slammed between us so there's kind of this writing reference there um you know the next one references a grandfather says years before he would have named this season by flattening a field where grasshoppers jumped into black smoke um you know uh there's a crow in the next one. Then we get the past. Um, then in the next one, we get bluebirds chirping 
Um, and the next one opens with a red tail hawk. You know, I don't know. Um, bisons, <laughs> um, which is all just like there's each of those references are just like a um, many, many things. And I think your context um, in terms of like the historical context and, um, you know, how um, and, you know, interestingly, I found an article. I think it's a dissertation. Dissertation. You found it too. The kinetic poetics of Shirin Bitsui, Natalie Diaz, Allison Adele Hedgecock, and Laylee Long Soldier. In this episode, we finally complete the set of poets yes. referenced in this dissertation, which is very exciting. <laughs> yes, I it's found a... that too. I also took note of footnote 112 on page 131 that discusses the uh, epigraph of Dissolve. Yes. Um Thank Big you, fan Jack. of footnotes. <laughs> this one in particular. Yeah, no, share share that footnote because I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and and just just to give credit where credit is due, Stephanie this yeah, Papa. The, yes, Stephanie Papa. Um from the, the dissertation. Sorbonne. Yes, the kinetic poetics of Sherwin Bitsui, Natalie Diaz, Allison Adele Hedgecoke, and Laylee Long Soldier. Um, thank you so, for this dissertation. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm stoked to read more of the dissertation. <laughs> I also, folks, if you find this dissertation, check out the annexes that include interviews with some of the poets, including Sherwin Bitsui, which Ooh, is very cool. Amazing. Um, yeah. So here's that, uh, footnote, which is just about the phrase Nahokas. Um, so it, the footnote, this uh, Dine phrase is repeated three times in the epigraph of Dissolve, a poem by Rexley Jim. A very similar poem of Jim's with a different Dine orthography is, um, quote, Nahokas Indi Nahokas, um, which Webster discusses in, quote, the art of failure of translating a Navajo poem. The word Nahokas can literally be translated to, quote, a slender, solid object revolves, but it is often used to refer to the Big Dipper asterism revolving around the North Star. As Webster notes, associated Dine beliefs can be lost in translation. For instance, the North is related to death and old age reflection, and assurance. The word indeed in this particular poem can be translated as, quote, even, though Webster notes it can also be heard as needy, which means on earth. In Jim's unpublished manuscript, Spirit Echoes Spirit, a version of the poem is translated as, quote, even Big Dipper turns, turns, turns on earth. It's so interesting. And obviously these are issues that to greater and lesser degrees always show up in translation or moving between languages, but there is such, just from reading some of this dissertation and trying to learn more about it, it seems like there is such a thick web of meaning in na native Navajo language. 
that it is it just doesn't move that way to english yeah exactly and i think that it's um and this is you know something that you mentioned which i think is right in terms of the historical you know like the the broad like general history of settler colonialism and anti-indigenous genocide and um and then the kind of ongoing for like hundreds of years that continued to the present um in various forms from boarding schools to like termination um the termination era to the issue before the supreme court about the status of the indian child welfare act or icwa um about you know um white families uh, historically been adopting um indigenous babies at extraordinary rates such that you know a law was passed to explicitly give preference to native families and communities um and that could be challenged uh and overturned by the supreme court um in this this go around but anyway like that's all very general and not like specific to um like the navajo nation or the dna people um or like bitsui's own sense which i don't have like like a, a super precise understanding of um just kind of saying that as like a, a caveat but it's the situation where there's this kind of like like to the where it gets to language and i think in a way where it gets to both nature but also the kind of shifting imagery like and the lack of like kind of the fragmentation and sort of difficulty of the language it that all feels very of a piece to me where like you know you grow up or like someone on the Navajo Nation Bitsui or whatever grows up learning maybe primarily English um the like colonial language and then navajo which has been which and even that word is like not even uh the preferred name um of like dna people because it i think it's like means like enemy or something by like apache people or something like that i'm not exactly sure but anyway there's both this kind of the like there's this yeah the weight of all that loss as is in the the end the the kind of being of a people that has survived genocide and is is living with that and like trying to recover what they can of like their people and language and uh cultures and things like that um, again, that's all very general, but I think it's like this sort of for me, well, and maybe this is like not the best analogy, but I was thinking about um Cynthia Cruz's poem Stammer that we talked about a while ago, um, that is kind of about like a very traumatic thing that sort of remains unnamed um in the poem. And is like, but is referred to a lot, and there's lots of repetition. Um, and in that poem, there's this kind of like trauma that the speaker is dealing with, 
that is sort of interrupting the language itself. And so I think it's like coming at it, thinking about it from that perspective of like how how does one talk about or think about or express what your world is when it's being like on the one hand, like already mediated through like a colonial language of English. It's being it's like already destroyed in in certain ways and present, but different in other ways. Anyway, it's like all those things are like huge disruptions, not just like to, you know, one's well-being, but to like the very ability to like even talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Um, Which I think is kind of how, at least that's one way that I understand like how Bitsui engages with language generally. Um, And because I think what's so interesting about some of these moments where like you shiver on the foam coast of an Arctic dream where whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice is so there's this tension of you're trapped by the whale ribs, right? They've clasped and fastened you at the same time you're moving and shifting to this language like the 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 ice is 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 shifting um and so it's this kind of like weird like it's not a static imprisonment um but it's but you are not in control i don't know that's kind of like a lot of random thoughts no that's super fascinating and i love that you brought up that question about movement versus like being locked in place because that line really stuck out to me um and it was that sort of juxtaposition because you have shifting ice and so ice is a liquid made solid something that normally is in a state of motion brought to a standstill but it's shifting ice so it's like on water or it's a glacier that's moving in some way and so it's this juxtaposition of being locked in place, the whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice. You are held in place to this thing that is solidified, but also somehow moving. And it put me in mind of two things. First of all, um, apparently, having read some of this in the interview in the annex to the dissertation, thank you again, Stephanie Papa, um, (laughs) the DNA language is very verb-based, apparently, and is very much a language of action and movement in how it just relates to the world, I guess. Um, and there's a little interchange towards the beginning of the of her interview with him about how that kind of works. And he talks about how the ing, he says, the ing is really important in the Navajo language. And some of how that shows up in his work is uh, he gives the example of the notion of mountaining, he says, this mountain stands before us mountaining, you know, this notion of movement and and stuff sort of imbues a lot of the work, but also is something that is kind of rooted in the DNA language. So I had that as part of what I was thinking about in terms of movement versus solidification. And then there's this notion of icebergs, right, where you see a tiny amount of it, but then there's so much under the surface. And even around that, there's much more water. 
So there is this like solidifying or because there's the whale skeleton right there, sort of calcifying effect of a language like English, a colonial language. And then there is this vast ocean of meaning that it misses because it's a tiny little block of ice. And even if there is like a small amount that is said and a huge amount that is unsaid in that language that is the ice, there's also this ocean around it, right? This ocean of meaning that it misses. And I found that really kind of a, a major moment in the poem. It's not even the biggest moment, and we'll come on to the moment that is perhaps why this poem ended up getting selected over others. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, what that put me in mind of, and I mentioned this article before on an episode, um, I believe when we talked about First Snow by Arya Aber, there's this uh, article that came out in The Guardian in 2018 called Behemoth Bully Thief, How the English Language is Taking Over the Planet. And so this article in The Guardian has a section about how like language and orientation works. And it uses an example. It puts English up against a language that I believe is called Kayardild, which is a native language in Australia. And it says, the, linguish, the linguist Nicholas Evans has described how Kayardild a language spoken in Northern Australia requires a speaker to continually orient themselves according to the cardinal directions, where an English speaker would orient things according to their own perception, my left, my right, my front, my back. A speaker of Kyrodild thinks in terms of North, South, East, and West. As a consequence, speakers of Kyrodild and those of several other languages that share this feature possess absolute reckoning or a kind of perfect pitch for direction. It also means removing oneself as the main reference point for thinking about space. As Evans writes of his own experiences learning the language, one aspect of speaking Kyrodild then is learning that the landscape is more important and objective than you are. Kyrodild grammar literally puts everyone in their place. So this is a very, it, there's not a ton of speakers of this language. It's it's very small, but it shapes the way that a culture interacts with the world around it. And English does the same. It prioritizes the individual subject and you orient the world around yourself rather than orienting yourself to the world. And that's kind of a big deal. So also if you have a language based around motion or around other relationships that can influence how the world is constructed for speakers of that language. Um, my last thought on this is that uh, in the interview in the thesis, Bitsui tells this little anecdote about speaking to his grandmother, I believe, when he was in, I think, South Dakota and realizing he didn't have, uh, though he speaks Dine, he didn't have like the native word for the Dakotas to tell her where he was. And it turns out that like the name for it is in reference to the people who normally lived in that area. So it's like the area of those people was the name for it in the language. And so that kind of a relationship between people and the area they live in was there in the language. It's not North Dakota or South Dakota. It's not like just a name for the region. It's about a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I like that you brought up, um, yeah, the, the way that language is orienting oneself. Cause I think that's actually very, relevant to this poem in particular in the in the specificness the specificity of what's happening and what's being referenced because um you know as we talked about like the phrase nahokas is like either like the big dipper or like um the north star or something north 
And in this whole poem, one thing that I found was like a very subtle grounding move in this poem is, you know, in the first stanza, flicking off the light switch, um, then it's like lichen buds, the curved creases of a mind pondering the mesquite tree's dull ache um, as it gathers uh, its leaves. Um, And so we have two... We have lichen, which is like a more arctic. Um, it's not quite a plant, but it's like a a plant-like organism. Like that kind um, of moss, sort of mossy. Uh, caribou eat it, um, and it's cool. But it's like you know way up north there. Um, but the mesquite tree is a like you know arid semi-arid tree that's like in the american southwest um <clears throat> which yeah would not be found near lichen um and knowing a little bit and then later on you know getting the 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 dna phrase it's you know the speaker is where the tree is that's like in the southwest but then the lichen is is budding the curved creases of a mind um and so the speaker is thinking about the arctic in a kind of way that then we get more into and more explicitly into like when we're shivering on the foam coast of an arctic dream and then we get the whale ribs and the ice and the glacier um but so we have the speaker sort of imagining themselves to the north. Um, and the, I don't know, it seemed related to the meanings of Nahokas being like, okay, it's, it's the stars in some sense, but it's also, it's a way to, to get north. Um, you know, to get to the Arctic, you could follow that star or something. Um, maybe. I don't know if that's, that's a stretch. Th- no, no, that's really interesting. I wonder, what do you think about a reading that is the like the opposite movement of like the Arctic encroaching on the speaker and mm. the Arctic as sort of representative of the the colonizing language spreading across the brain like lichen on a tree almost? Mm. Um, and then you get this, you know, what like sounds like when held under glacier water and what essentially like the Big Dipper feels like under the weight of all that loss, like all of this coming to the speaker. I like your reading. I'm just curious mm. what you think about. Do you think it goes kind of both ways? I think it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Um, yeah, because I mean, especially with the whale at least like in spirit and probably a little more than that, like where the whale ribs are fastening you to the language of shifting ice. It's like, it's not necessarily that. Um, Yeah. The speaker is like venturing to the Arctic. It's more that the Arctic is, is imposing itself um, on the speaker in, in a way. Yeah. It's like an almost even if it if it could be a trip to the Arctic, but maybe kind of an unbidden one. Yeah, right. 
Um, and it's because it's interesting too how you get there. Like the dove's eyes are like the Telephone the portal wires. almost, you know? Because yeah. it's like we have the mesquite tree, and then it's got its leaves, but then there's all the doves, these spotted doves around the tree, right? Um, and they're in this kind of intense. They're like clouds, and then they're in rows of twelve. Um, but then, and that in that first stanza, as it gathers its leaves around clouds of spotted doves, they're they feel very literal, in a sense of like there's a tree and there's the birds there. But then, the dove's eyes, black as nightfall, is the beginning of the second stanza. Shiver on the foam coast of an arctic dream where whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice and it's like the eyes are on the coast of the dream it's like very trippy and and, and then they come back with the telephone wires yeah because then the third standard is like seeing into those eyes which the only eyes we <laughs> we have here are the dove's eyes and they uncoil their telephone wires. And I don't know exactly what to make of the telephone wires, except for the fact that in the other, the other like recurring kind of tactile thing in a lot of the poems of the book are the kind of electrical stuff and kind of machinery. Um, like just as just to give examples, um, in the very first poem, the I bite my eyes shut one. Um, there's a moment that's like pull our hair one strand at a time from electric sockets and paint our stems with sand in the kitchen sink. Um, and then there's another moment, um, where it's like, you know, there's some neon light. There's like a lot of gasoline and cars, um, and sparks, um, and televisions. And then there's like, a jet engine and trains um, and cr a chrome engine paint. And then the next poem, the one after this one that we're talking about is, I cover my eyes with electrical wires. See yellow dawn eclipse stop sign, stop signs turn green and screech into phosphorescence, um, which is amazing. That's really um, good, yeah. Yeah. And so... Anyway, there's like, there's a, <laughs> you know, there's a machinery, but so yeah, the doves are, the doves are weird. Um, well, they also then after the telephone wires, they gather their inaudible lions with plastic forks, tongue their salty ribbons. It just gets really out there in terms of all the different connections that are happening. Yeah, right. I mean... It's like inaudible lions. Are they sea lions? Are they regular lions? I don't know. I don't are know they why. Stand-ins for some kind of industry, right? Because yep. it immediately comes with the plastic fork. So is it like the silent predatory forces that descend, kind of thing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm kind no. of happy to just ride the waves of meaning at that point. It's like yeah, it, yeah. It could be sea lions. Could be factories could be it's intense mm -hmm. um yeah it gets that gets very far out um yeah. and then you're tonguing salty ribbons and there's weedy stems and your fingers are prickly um 
everything is like being transformed and new things are coming in and it's 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 wild um all while potentially having a stare down with these doves yeah right the doves are like freaking the speaker out yeah yeah Yeah. there's also this is where the explicit reference to dream comes in um but obviously a poem that starts with flicking off the light switch as you noted is like the lights are off it's dark it's nighttime maybe and then there is this arctic dream and in uh many native cultures and i believe it is true of dna culture as well like dreams have a lot of significance and dream time is a really important concept and so to have all of this taking place in like the dream space is particularly meaningful and to have i don't know how you want to characterize it because maybe you want to say this conversation between languages but it feels more fraught and violent than that word would be but to have almost this language combat going on in the dream space feels like really significant because even just on a without associated spiritual situations and meanings there's like the intense privacy of your own mind which is where dreams take place and to have another language there is like whoa yeah i think i mentioned this on the podcast before i know i've told you about it before but when i worked in the youth services department at a library one of my coworkers was bilingual she had moved to rolling meadows illinois from mexico and at some point we were talking about language stuff because there were a bunch of spanish-speaking patrons and it came up all the time and somehow the question came up about like do you dream in english because spanish is her native language and she said yes she did but whenever she had dreams in english they were black and white and dreams in spanish were in color which is like well wow i will never forget that because it was like (laughs) it's one of those things that for the person obviously is just sort of like, well, this is what happens. But for the rest of us who are like, whoa, really? Like, <laughs> whoa. And it it's one of those things where like, yeah, I could see why that would happen. It's just like, again, it's that deep connection that we don't always think about all the ways that language just shapes our brain on such a deep level. But having this poem explicitly draw connection between different languages in conflict, in dream space, had me thinking about that while I was reading it as well. Yeah, definitely. That was amazing. Yeah, to me, like, the last kind of, like, thing that I've found fascinating is just the, like, well, the, the like, the like-like part, where, like... Um, that was the big moment that kind of sealed the deal for us talking about this poem, because that is yeah, such yeah. a moment. I know I would. Yeah, I was like torn between this one and another one. And I was like, what do you think, Jack? And Jack was like, well, this part's pretty much awesome. So maybe this one. <laughs> the um, poems are equally good in different ways. But the one the, between the two of them, the moment within them that stuck out for me, at least, was this what like sounds like. Yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool stuff, cool image, cool thought. I like it. I know. I know. Exactly. Um. Because it's, in a way, it's, you know, like, you know, like um, similes and, you know, it you it's a it's the comparison that uses like or as, you know, um, and 
uh, just using that word, you know, there could be any word that one is wondering what it sounds like when it's being held under glacier water. And to me, it was, yeah, it was just such a, I don't know. I, I don't like part of me just gets like very far out with it where I'm just like, it's like, man, and it sounds like something and we're like in language and it's like we're trying to make these connections with different things. And it's like you're in the Southwest, but you're thinking about the Arctic and it's like different. But then you're in this other language and you're trying to think about yourself that like is antithetical to the language you're thinking about yourself in in a kind of way um and it's like how do you and and then it's all in this poem which like is itself one big like in itself where it's just like trying to communicate an impossible thing of like human experience to another person who can never truly know what you're <laughs> going through and the great um, challenge of language to begin with even when everyone speaks the same language yeah yeah exactly um oh, yeah. and yeah you're so right trying to bridge language by saying well this word or phrase is like this whole group of other words and phrases and yeah no it's yeah i'm with you yeah. <laughs> and then just, yeah, then just like literally just imagining being like under glacier water, like being so cold and trying to say like, and like, what does that sound in extremely cold water? Um, and, and what does it feel like to be trapped under the ice? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause again, it's, it is, it's another kind of moving and trapping at the same time in a similar way. I mean, obviously the ice is, is coming back again, but, but yeah, being held under is like, uh, you know, it's almost like you're being drowned or something. It's really um, violent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and the the glacier water specifically is so i mean i don't even know how long a human being would survive in that cold water like <laughs> a minute i don't know not long <laughs> not long um for sure not long unless they're kate winslet because apparently who knew <laughs> she could hold her breath for 7 minutes and more because she trained with world-renowned free divers because for <laughs> some reason for the movie avatar the way of water an entirely cg spectacle fest where everything we're like nothing is real and everything is digital sets oh my god james cameron still made them all go underwater in these like 30 foot tanks that they had to swim to the bottom of do their acting and then swim back out of so they all had to learn free diving and kate winslet was like no big deal. I'm the best at acting and also everything else. So I can hold my <laughs> breath for seven minutes and I'll just learn how to do that now. Oh my God. I James Cameron just wants everyone to spend as much time underwater as he does. I'm convinced <laughs> that he is just like some kind of water maniac who's just like, hey, everybody, what if we drowned <laughs> today? How cool would that be? Let's figure out how long we can live underwater. I'm going to make a movie about water. I love water so much. I'm going to get in my submersibles and look at boats under the water. <laughs> I'm James Cameron. I made Titanic. 
<laughs> I also made the abyss. No one talks about the abyss, but it's also underwater. Oh, man. I made um, the movie Aliens, which is in space, which is like, what if the air was water? <laughs> <laughs> yes, pretty much. Pretty much that. That's definitely what this... Um, that's what this poem this is about. Far as channeling, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely about box office sensation, James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, Any my other thoughts? I have one last thing, which yeah. is about this whale situation. Okay, yeah. Um, because it's also an interesting I, I just realized I have a thing I already thought about it and a thing I just thought about it. The thing that I just thought about it is that it is this interesting moment of movement and also lack of movement because it's a whale which is renowned for swimming around in the water like a big old whale um, but it's whale <laughs> ribs which is the skeleton of the whale and it is the skeleton removed from the living whale because uh, it's just the ribs and there's this little bit in Moby Dick in a section chapter 103 measurements of the whale's skeleton which is one of my favorite bits of Moby Dick um <laughs> which is about contemplating the vast size of whales and whatnot via their skeletons. And it says, How vain and foolish then thought I for timid, untraveled man to try to comprehend aright this wondrous whale by merely poring over his dead, attenuated skeleton stretched in this peaceful wood. No, only in the heart of quickest perils, only when within the eddyings of his angry flukes, only on the profound, unbounded sea can the fully invested whale be truly and livingly found out. Which seems kind of of a piece with like a language in its fullness versus like, wow, this is a huge skeleton and very impressive. But even seeing the monstrous skeleton of the whale, you're only getting a tiny glimpse of what it means to be in the presence of a whale. Because out on the ocean, you see this creature that is the size of the boat that you're in. And it, you know, if it's on a whaling mission and you're trying to harpoon it in your little rowboats and it comes out of the water and all that stuff, you know, it's a whole different experience of whale than it is to see a whale skeleton. And I feel like in some ways you've got a language in the fullness of its meaning and the fullness of its movement and whatever in its natural element, you might even say amongst native speakers who are, you know, they swim in the water of that language and that's where they're meant to, you know, create meaning through language. And then you have a skeleton of a language with this sort of colonial language that comes in and strips away all of those deep rich meanings that give it its full uh living so that's my thought and then this whole section about the whale skeleton mm. concludes with this little comparison between the vertebrae and the whale and the ribs of the whale and like a cathedral which is kind of cool um, but that was uh the connection that i had already thought of about whales and uh good old moby dick which i do love a great deal <laughs> no i love that i love that with that i am fully prepared to hear the poem again <laughs> all right um yes this is uh, uh the first line flicking off the light switch from flood song by sherwin bitsui flicking off the light switch lichen buds the curved creases of a mind pondering the mesquite tree's dull ache as it gathers its leaves around clouds of spotted doves. 
calling them in rows of twelve back from their winter sleep. Doves' eyes black as nightfall shiver on the foam coast of an arctic dream where whale ribs clasp and fasten you to a language of shifting ice. Seeing into those eyes, you uncoil their telephone wires, gather their inaudible lions with plastic forks, tongue their salty ribbons, and untie their weedy stems from your prickly fingers. You stop to wonder what like sounds like when held under glacier water, how Nahokas feels under the weight of all that loss. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews help us with the algorithm and are the best way for us to find new listeners. Do you have thoughts about this poem? Or is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? We would love to hear from you, and there are tons, tons of ways to get in touch. Yes, you can send us an email to CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, we are at Close Talking Poetry. And we are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. And speaking of all of those many and varied social media platforms, a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager, Corey China. Woo woo! Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Come back again. Please come back. Just one more time. Door's always open. Okay, bye. I see ya. <laughs>